KSQD thanks The Opening, a center for courses in writing, for supporting the story behind the story. The Opening offers classes, book completion groups, and writing retreats in Santa Cruz and online, led by award-winning local writer Andy Couturier, author of The Abundance of Less. More information at theopening.org or 831-728-9983. Thank you, The Opening, for supporting Community Radio, K-Squid 90.7 FM. You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is the poet Daniel Summerhill. An Oakland native, Daniel teaches poetry and social action and composition studies at CSU Monterey Bay. He has performed his poetry on stages around the world, including at the Kwamashu Center in South Africa as part of a workshop sponsored by the U.S. Embassy. He is the 2015 New York Empire State Grand Slam champion, a 2015 Nitty Gritty Slam champion, and a recipient of the Sharon Olds Fellowship for Poetry. His poems have been published at the Lily Review, Califragal, Button, and Blavity, to name just a few. And he edited the collection Black Joy, an anthology of black boy poems, which came out earlier this year. He is currently in the process of editing a new collection of his work titled Divine, Divine, Divine. Daniel Summerhill, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to do this interview and to, to chat. Yeah. Thank you for being here. For listeners who may not have read your poetry or seen you perform before, how would you describe your style? Wow. Um, my style, uh, I would say, is as transparent and as, as honest as um, it can be. Um, so I would say that it, it, you know, encompasses that that kind of rawness or, or transparent style or aesthetic. Yeah, that, that that poetry I think begs for in a lot of ways. Hmm. What do you mean by that raw and honesty? Like, how does that come through in your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so oftentimes, uh, poetry is is a lot of um, introspection or like self reflection and introspection and things like that. And so, uh, when it comes to being honest or transparent or raw. What comes out on the page is oftentimes things that your, your deepest down um, kind of intimacies in, in, in places that you don't always um, expose outside of poetry. So when it comes to, to my writing, I strive to be as honest and transparent and, 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 and trying to do some soul searching. And, and that's the things that I strive to put on the page are those, those, those things that I think a lot of folks don't um, want to grapple with for one reason or another. Tell me how you came to poetry when you came to it. Yeah. How did you find your voice? Sure, sure. So that, I think that's two, two questions. <laughs> uh, so I came to poetry. Um, this will be a, a really cool story. So I always say 50% of the reason why I started writing poetry is my oldest sister. Um, her name is Tanisha Smith. Um, she's also a poet, and she's mm. um, 15 years older than I am. So um, when I was in middle school, I was, yeah, the eighth grade, she had just gotten married and she moved to New York with her, with her husband, her new husband. And so um, she and I were the most, most alike and I think we were the closest out of all of my, my, my siblings. So anyways, when she left, it was really kind of a, a heartbreak. Um, however, she left behind this photo album filled with poems that she had written when she was in high school. And so I, you know, like, like most middle schoolers, you're, you're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do, who you want to be, um, and how to kind of, you know, take your place in the world. And so I found this photo album of poetry and I, you know, I opened it, I was reading the poems and it was, um, the, 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 the photo album kind of started as like a catalyst for, yeah. I think, 
what was already inside of me. I think I was already a poet before that. I just think it took finding that photo album of poetry that still inspires me to this day. Um, and that's what kind of sparked, you know, my curiosity with, with poetry um, and what language can do. So that was 50% of the reason why I started. The other 50% is I had an English teacher in the ninth grade named Mr. Ross, Justin, yeah, Justin Ross, Mr. Justin Ross. Um, and so we had a unit on poetry during English, um, English class, and we got to write poems and share poems. And so I wrote a poem and I ended up sharing it with the class. And, you know, it was received well and everybody, you know, thought I, thought I you know, did a really good job with, with the poem. So the very next day, Mr. Ross uh, pulls me aside after class. He hands me um, two things, one, a journal with uh, a poem in it and then a quote by J.D. Salinger, and also wrote So Much Talent Never Wasted. And mm. um, he also bought me the first novel I ever read, which is um, The White Boy Shuffle by Paul Betty. And so anyways, it wasn't, his 50% wasn't like this grand gesture. And I think what's missed in a lot of, in a lot when it comes to education, what a lot of people miss are those small um, gestures that I think spark big differences. And I think Mr. Ross taking his time to go and buy me a, you know, a journal and, and, a, and a book to read, um, I think that meant a lot, and I think honestly, he's responsible for um, at least you know encouraging me, encouraging me to write and, and wanting to to be interested in words and, and what they can do. So yeah, that's how I, I came to poetry. Mm. There's probably a whole lot more in that that you know we probably don't have time for. But you said, how did I find my voice? Yeah, yeah. I think I found my voice through a series of trial and error. I think initially, um, again, I didn't start off with wanting to be honest with myself in poems. I think it was a way, because um, I was quiet, you know, and reserved kid. So I think it was just a way to just journal and outlet. However, when it came to like poems and then poems that I would share later on, it wasn't, the, you know, those poems I don't think represented um, my authenticity or my voice. So it wasn't, I don't even think until maybe college, um, undergraduate school when I actually decided that, you know, I'm going to do some more digging and I'm going to try to make each poem as honest and, and as transparent and as real as, as, as I can make it. Um, and that if that means, you know, me dealing with some rough nights or being uneasy at times, then so be it. If it's going to mean poems that are more authentic to, to, to me and my voice. Did you feel a difference when you started sort of owning that voice and yeah. writing those types of poems? Sure, sure. I think so. I think it's a it's kind of a liberating experience because you know, I just finished up a intro to creative writing class. And so the very last assignment we did was um, this mini memoir assignment where they had to to write, you know, a memoir. And, and oftentimes memoirs in terms of creative writing are, are the toughest things to write. And because they do a similar thing where they do beg for you to do that um, soul searching and reflection and oftentimes try to access places that you may have compartmentalized or put away that you try to stay away from. So in, in um, explaining that exercise or, you know, that assignment, what I realized is a lot of them were in a place that I was when I started out writing or when I was trying to find my voice. And so what I realized is that up until that, that moment or that point, when I decided to be more honest and transparent, what happened was I was consuming a lot of prescriptive kind of instructions mm. on what I should do or how I should sound, um, the language I should use, the discourse I should participate in. And so it wasn't until, again, until like college when I decided that I have a whole culture, a whole discourse, a whole language, um, colloquialisms that I have access to that I use, just not when it comes to poetry. And that's what I should be using when it comes to poetry, because if it's anything but that, then that's not authentically myself or me. And so, um, again, it was a whole, you know, couple year of a, 
uh, philosophical, mental, you know, reflection and toying with what it means to, to, to exist as a, you know, a black male in the world of in literature and to have your work thought about or, or, or accepted or listened to the same way as, as your peers. Um, and that includes being authentic, right? So oftentimes being authentic in my skin looks different than, than others, other folks. And so um, I had to really grapple with, you know, the balance between the two and what that looks like, the, the repercussions of that, right? What is it going to look like once I decide to be authentic and, and be as honest as I can? So, so yeah, I mean, I did, I've seen a huge, you know, a huge difference, mostly just in myself, and I felt a lot better when I, when I came to the page. And your poetry, of course, isn't just about what's on the page because you perform a lot of it. Not sure. all of it, but you yeah. you have a lot of performances of your poetry. Mm-hmm. So you're constructing these performances as well as the actual poems, right? You're not just working with words. You're working with your body and with your yeah. voice and with all these other things. Yeah. What's your process like for that? When does a poem go from a written object to a performance? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to try to answer the question <laughs> uh, the best that I can, and then I'll kind of unpack it. Um, I think a poem moves from, like, page to stage when, uh, I guess, the confines of paper can no longer, like, you know, hold it or do it justice. So, yeah, you mentioned that, you know, not all, all the poems get, you know, get performed. And, yeah, that's very valid. And I think everything does begin with page. It does begin with writing. And I think what's lost in a lot of time, you know, a lot of times when folks think about, you know, performance poetry is the fact that um, the folks that do it are, are writers first. And, and, and the things that they craft and, and come up with are thought about on the page and are thought about in terms of craft, too. And I think a lot of folks miss that or look, look it over because they say, hey, they write folks off as you're just a performer or you're just, <laughs> you know, this or that. But I think you have to, to write well in order to perform well. If you perform a poem that's terrible, then it's, it's going to show that the poem is, the poem is terrible. But yeah, I mean, I, f- I fell in love with performance actually after failing for, for a couple of years. Um, my first, I remember the first time I actually decided to read publicly like my work and like folks were not receptive at all. Mm. Like they were having conversations and, you know, chuckling God, that in must the be back. Hard. Yeah, there was doors being open. I, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I could have, you know, I could have did two things. I could have, you know, quit there and, you know, said, forget it. I'm never going to, you know, share my work ever again. Or I could, you know, go back and figure out why wasn't I engaging enough? And, you know, what was it about my performance that didn't hold their their attention? Um, so, I, you know, I decided to, you know, of course, do the latter. And, you know, ultimately, uh, folks don't, you know, usually talk or, or open doors or anything <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm also, you know, a performer, and that's a huge part of, of what I do. I kind of want to unpack something that you said, because um, yeah. you said that people tend to write off performance poets mm-hmm. um, as just performing and not being good writers. Yeah. And that's fascinating to me once you start to look at, like, the history of poetry and actually storytelling yep. altogether, right? Like, storytelling started as an oral medium. Yep. Our, some of our most famous poems are, like, the Odyssey, which was passed down orally mm-hmm. um, for generations and generations before it was ever written down. Yep. What do you think accounts for that shift? Like, why do you think people now look at a performance poet and try to write them off? Yeah, well, it's, so um, I think actually this shift is actually in performers' favor now, like currently. Hmm. Um, but but like recent history, not so much, right? And so I say that it's in the favor of performers now because um, a lot of the folks that are in like um, in the spotlight now in terms of, of poetry actually did come from like poetry slam backgrounds or performance hmm. poetry backgrounds. You think of Danette Smith, Franny Choi, um, you think of Clint Smith, you think of 
all these folks that, you know, actually began performing poems or, you know, came to fame through poetry slams and winning these slam competitions and things like that. Those are the folks that are actually being published and actually Mm. are achieving awards that typically folks that came from the page would do. And so, again, there's a trend now that folks that, that are coming from, like, the performance side are being recognized. However, prior to, like, recent, you know, like, recently, there was, of course, when, like, a slam and, like, spoken word came about, um, like, late 80s, 90s, and, and things like that, they, they, they were completely stepsistered or thought of as, as kind of other um, and not a part of, like, the actual culture or art or craft of poetry. And so, yeah, I'm glad that it's, it's swinging the other way because, like you said, um, I mean, I even teach and I teach a class, a poetry class, and we talk about the same thing, about the fact that, you know, all written word derives from some some sort of orality. And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, you think about, again, like the, the first folks to, to, to do poetry, um, the tr- French troubadours, right, or African griots. These are storytellers, but they use lyric to, to kind of deliver their stories, and that was poetry. And so things were oral before, way before they, they came to page and before they existed as font and text. And so a lot of my work, I strive to, to break that, to break the notion of, of, of poetry just being font and text. I think it's, it's you know, it, it shatters those walls and it should shatter those walls. So you do write everything on the page. Mm-hmm. What role do things like experimentation and improvisation play in your writing and play in your performances? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I think what I stress, because I'm, I'm, I keep on plugging these classes I'm teaching. <laughs> uh, class I'm teaching in spring is a is a page to stage class. It's about performance poetry, and so um, one of the things that we'll be talking about is the fact that your your movements, um, your dramatization, um, those do still derive from the page and, and what the poem wants to do on the page. And so you shouldn't just be moving or doing things just for the sake of it or, or because, you know, you thought about a movement. It's really how the poem directs you to make those movements and do those things. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to performance poetry, it's still the poem that's being performed, right? It's not um, anything else but the poem. So it's like, how can you illustrate the words on the page by using your body or, or whatnot? And so I think about it the opposite direction. I think about it from the vantage point of the actual poem and the page, and um, that's including line breaks or including section breaks or, you know, how it's arranged in stanzas or if it has a certain form or whatever it is. I try to let that kind of um, influence the way that the performance goes. And then over time, you know, there's there's poems that I have now that I've performed for six, seven years, and so those poems also transform and morph over the years and take different shapes, but that's only, again, after it's been explored from the the vantage point of the poem. So that actually is something that I wanted to talk about because there's a a few different recordings of a couple of your poems. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Ode to Elijah is one Mm -hmm. of them where you've done it a couple different times. Yeah. And um, then Preservation. (laughs) (laughs) And then Preservation where there's a recording of you doing it solo and then another recording of you doing it with um, Amenoset. Is that how you say Mm -hmm. her name? Yeah. Um, And I have been really curious about that that process because they they change over time, yeah. right? Yeah. Even Ode to Elijah, which is I think all the same words, the presentation yep. changes very different. Yeah. And then in preservation, when you bring in a menoset, yeah, there's there's new words as a new perspective. Sure. Um, in addition to a new presentation. Yeah. Talk to me about that editing process. How is yeah. it informed by? that sort of repetition of performance? One of the, the the main things is the more you perform a poem, the more comfortable you are with it and mm. the more 
the more you're able to to kind of take risk and do certain things differently or try new things out. And so um, a lot of the, the the changes come from the fact that, I've, again, I've performed those poems like hundreds of times now, not just uh, in recordings, but also live and doing readings and things like that. And so after that many repetitions, you start to, to understand how certain things are received, how the audience reacts to certain things or trying new, you know, ways to pronounce words or to pronounce different lines or, you know, pauses or things like that. And you, you get a, you, you kind of play around with the performance after a while, just kind of to kind of get a feel for what works and then also what works in certain spaces. And so um, I wouldn't perform Ode to Elijah the same way um, at a TED Talk as I would, <laughs> uh, you know, at a library reading, right? It'll be kind of a different reading yeah. of, of the poem. So I think it also depends on the platform of the space. Um, one thing that I'm huge on is co collaborating with um, musicians and, and live bands and things like that. So of course, when I'm delivering a poem with live music or even with the vocalist, like with Amina said, um, it's going to be a different reading or a different performance of the poem. So I think, you know, all those different variables um, have a role in the way that the poem is delivered ultimately. And a lot of your poems, as you said, they have, um, they're performed in very different ways from other poems. So yeah. Ode to Elijah is this very, I, I think so much of meter and rhythm in your poetry. Sure, um, sure. So Ode to Elijah, the delivery is quick. It's very precise. You're building momentum all the way through until like the very end when mm -hmm. it, it sort of slows down again. Yeah. But then in something like Ode to Slow Dancing, the rhythm is slower and it's more even throughout. Yeah. Um, and, and you said that there is some relationship, right, between what's on the page and, and yeah. what you're performing. Mm -hmm. Can you describe a little bit about the differences between those on the page? Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. So like, for instance, in Ode to Elijah, um, what you're talking about is, is the tension um, that's kind of built throughout the entire poem. There's actually, I think there's two instances of tension. So there's, um, like you said, there's kind of this crescendo of... Uh, of, of cadence and rhythm up until semi end of the poem and then it's released and then there's like one more kind of quick uh, build and release towards the end too. So again, that just mirrors what it looks like on the page too. So when you're reading this poem, um, as a reader, you have, again, all this tension that's that's built up. And as a reader, um, you kind of expect it to be released at some point, just as, as a matter of when. And so when you think about tension as like a rubber band um, and something, you know, have a weight on the end of that rubber band and it's kind of bouncing. So tension is, is of course, that it's eventually the rubber band has to has to snap or, you know, retract at some point. And so all the same things that happen on the page, that's the same kind of um, things that, that I'm, I'm striving to deliver when it comes to, to inflection in voice and to, and to pacing and to rhythm, to things like that. So then like, you know, Ode to Slow Dancing is not meant to be, to have that same level of, of tension or suspense that, that Ode to Elijah is. It's meant to be more of a, you know, a reflective and um, I think more of a, uh, meditative um, poem, and so it you know it demands other things from the performance other than that 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 tension, and so yeah I think it just you know again it depends on the page the way that it's designed on the page the way that the the tension works the way that you know it's 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 all played out I think it all it's all wrapped up in that. I, I just found it very fascinating, especially some of the ones that do change over time. Yeah. Um, one of the other ones that I thought of was uh, 19 Letters to My Father, because mm -hmm. there's a reading that I think is in a classroom or some kind of lecture hall that is fairly straight, where it, it reads more like a list. Okay. And then there are other readings that you have done where the numbering sort of moves around and yeah. it shifts to being at the end of the line rather than marking the beginning sure, of a line sure. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it does change the way that, it just does change the tension yeah. and changes, I think, for me, the interpretation of how, of a poem like that. 
reading your poems in all of these different spaces and having these different sort of interactions and engagements with audiences, mm -hmm. does that change the way that you understand them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so I always say that once I write a poem and the poem is published or, um, yeah, it's published either, you know, in print or uh, through some kind of performance or something like that, I always say that the poem is no longer mine. Like mm. I'm, I'm giving it to whoever's consuming it at that point. And so it's always interesting to hear um, other folks uh, with feedback or to, you know, after a performance or reading to say, hey, I got this or this stood out to me or, you know, I really resonated with this 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 image or, or whatever it is. And so it's always interesting, again, to, to kind of hear um, the different takes when I have, you know, one intention for the mm -hmm. poem and then someone comes with this completely different spin. It's always interesting to, to, to kind of hear those. And I, I don't know if they necessarily affect the way that I write or even perform, um, if somebody takes it and has a different mm -hmm. spin or, or, or thought about it, then that's completely up to them because it's their poem at that point. Welcome to Cats on Dogs, insights for both ends of the leash. I'm professional dog trainer Lori Katz here with Watsonville's very own radio retriever Chopa. We'll take your calls, answer your dog training questions, and bring you interviews with local experts and international dog training treasures. You'll also have the opportunity to send out love songs and get well soon messages to your favorite canines and other animal companions as well. Listen to Cats on Dogs the first Saturday of each month, 1 to 2 p.m. on 90.7 KSQD. You've got a friend in me. If you're just joining me, my guest today is poet, performer, and CSU Monterey Bay professor Daniel Summerhill. There's another interview with Janae Carden at KALW, which I highly recommend everyone listen to. It's only yeah. 10 minutes long. And you talked to her about how hip-hop, and particularly Tribe Called Quest, has influenced yeah. your writing. <laughs> yeah. And it, it made me curious how you distinguish between lyricism and hip-hop and poetry, or if you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I actually think that, so a lot of, you, you mentioned that a lot of my work uh, has to do with like rhythm, and I think mm. it, it does kind of come from my, my love of hip-hop, and, and particularly like a Tribe Called Quest um, and, 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 you know, the way that they use cadence and rhyme and rhythm, too. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, of course, they're, in, they're you know, they, they're connected. I think it's not necessarily like the way that, the, that, that things are delivered. I think it's ultimately like uh, a lot of times content, right? Mm -hmm. So content is, is vastly different when it comes to poetry as opposed to, to like hip-hop or rap. Um, oftentimes, like rap is 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 less uh, narrative based. It's it's more so like this outward expression of like self identity mm -hmm. or or culture. Um, poetry can ha can be that, but I think poetry is also many times lyrical and introspective and like meditative too. So it doesn't always come out the same way that like a rap would or or, or some hip hop would too. And then uh, when it comes to rap, usually it's always kind of thought about in the same vein as music too. Right. And so poetry, of course, can, you know, you can definitely write poems to music in it, but that, you know, if that's a thing, but um, it's usually, it's like word first or image first or thought first, right. Or idea first. Um, mm. And so I, again, I think it's just, it's another form. It's another brilliant form. Um, but I, of course it's, you know, of course it's poetic. Of course it's lyrical. Of course, um, you know, the words are, are important in, in both things. So I'd like to get into some of the specific poems that you've written. So I'm going to play a recording now of your poem, Oakland for the Untrained Eye. And before I do, can, you, can I ask you to set it up? Just tell us a little bit about it. It's, so it's called Oakland for the Untrained Eye, or it's called Oakland, and then, you know, parentheses for the Untrained Eye. The reason it's that way, because I have, 
like four poems uh, called Oakland. And so <laughs> I have to differentiate them somehow. So anyways, that poem came about from the fact that I had been reading, um, when I wrote it, I think Oakland was ranked, I don't know, like top five most dangerous cities mm-hmm. or something like that in the United States or top five homicides or whatever it was. So I'm reading all these kind of reports and these news articles, and um, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, these are the things that, that folks want to write about, but they never want to write about anything else outside of like these negative or these big negative connotations. And so me growing up there, me knowing, you know, Oakland firsthand, I said, I'll, you know, I'll do the, the, the reporting. Um, and so that's where the, the poem kind of came from, is, is, is that me thinking about, you know, what does Oakland mean to me and what does it mean to the folks that actually live here and grow up here and experience um, Oakland? Coming out of New York, I always learned about flavor and different shit like that. Not to diss New York, I learned a lot, but I never knew the game. I never learned the game. And when I went to Baltimore, I didn't learn the game. Nobody ever took the time to show me the game. When I got to Oakland, that's when I learned the game. In Oakland, they lynched Negroes. In Oakland, they decapitated freedom songs in Oakland. We owe loan in Oakland. We sing redemption songs in Oakland. We artistic novelty. I was only eight years old when I inadvertently drove my first car directly into the car behind me until this day I'm still trying to learn how to take my foot off the gas puddle you see in every city. There lies a little boy, a girl with a five dollar dream and a million dollar ambition, a fist full of crumpled up paper mache wishes and a mask, a mask of uncertainty in those cities. The rest in the shadow of I-80 West, 5 South, 87 North, and maybe just east of the Mississippi where dreams are illegal, where aspirations are smuggled on the backs of single mothers and latchkey children, a world moving too fast in a gas pedal glued to the pavement. Too fast for a story to be read. Too fast for an equation to be worked out and too unforgiving to ask for a second longer. I'm a city boy. Oakland to be exact a place where you can still smell the aftermath of Oscar Grant in the mornings where you can scrape the DNA of souls of mischief, digital underground, and even remnants of Pac from the mic in any studio where you can hear echoes of Guapale's closer or maybe Curtis Mayfield bumping through the speakers of an 89 Park Avenue, a place where they mistake colors for gods and play Russian roulette with souls, but I would have it no other way, I would say. My city has saved more than it has killed, I would say. We built the city with the cold bricks they've dealt us and protected with the technology they left on the railroad tracks of Sobrani Park back in the 80s. My city, I'm a city boy. The east side of Oakland, the murder capital, crime epicenter, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, Black Panther marching, MC Hammer rhyming, Loma, Pure cracking, black, white, Asian, Latino, orange, yellow, blue, brown skinned folks, free thinkers, free spirited, free love, but expensive homes across street between Brooklyn and Chicago, the offspring of Harlem and Atlanta conceived in the summertime, so it's always 75 degrees, cumulus clouds, my city. Uh, but my city isn't always in sixth gear, you see, there's a unique stillness that ad-libs for the big mouth reputation and the uprising population. There is a little boy who catches the dreams most spend their life chasing and believes not even gravity can hold him down. He's from the city. He's a city boy. He's from Oakland. 
He writes poems about 360,000 people who write the history of the inconspicuous rights they've never seen in the dreams that money cannot buy and why brown-skinned bodies are like mortar for police raids, the ugliest city of gorgeous people you will ever mind in a cipher of brilliant 17-year-old minds on a proverbial death row who will never see adulthood because boys in black and blue carrying Glock 22s will stunt their growth. But in Oakland, in Oakland, we self-made joyous. In Oakland, we sing freedom songs. In Oakland, we Oscar. In Oakland, he lives. So you grew up in Oakland. You spent most of your life in the Bay Area. Talk to me about the role of place in your writing. Yeah. So in, in the same way that uh, I try to be, I guess, honest and transparent in my work, I think it's also something to be said that wherever you grow up, the things that you see, the, you know, uh, the weather, uh, the culture, the, the, the music scene, the food, the food places, all those things also influence and aid in, in your work too. And so when you're talking about Oakland and all the things that I mentioned in the poem, the, f the fact that it's super eclectic and um, down to earth um, and, and, and exciting and, and um, colorful yet, you know, revolutionary and rebellious mm -hmm. place. I think all of that comes through in my work or, or at least I, I strive to encompass all of that in my work. So places is, is, is huge um, and, and a lot, most folks are very proud of where they're from or they mention where they're from, right? Or, you know, when folks ask, you know, where you're from and there's a reason for that. I think it's, there's a, there's, there's few things in the world that we can um, hold on to, but I think places is one of them. It's one of the things that you grew up somewhere, you lived somewhere, right? And so um, that place influenced you as a person. And if you're a writer, it influences you as a writer. And so um, I think places is huge and it's, you know, it's important. And I think, well, hopefully, you know, it comes through in my work, too. Well, what I really love about this piece is you, you cover a lot of territory, and some of it is quite painful, but some of it is also, I mean, joyful, yeah. um, for lack of a better word. I think you really see all these like, multifaceted components of this place, right? Yeah. Oakland is not one thing in this right. poem. It's right. a thousand things from you know, a city on stolen Ohlone land mm -hmm. to a place where poets grow up mm -hmm. to a yeah. place where Oscar Grant was murdered. Right, right. But the sort of conclusion at the end is, I think, really uplifting, right? Yeah. My city has saved more than it has killed. Mm -hmm. It's the ugliest city of gorgeous people in Oakland, we self-made joyous. In yeah. Oakland, we sing freedom songs. In Oakland, we Oscar. In Oakland, yeah. he lives. Yeah. What is the message that you want to convey here? And what does it mean for you to say that in Oakland, Oscar Grant lives? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm a firm believer in not being, um, I'm a firm believer in not being too prescriptive in poetry. <laughs> and so uh, when it comes to that poem or, just, or any poem, uh, I always kind of say it, my job is to, to to paint this picture or lay things out and then you take it and you come to your own conclusion based off of the, the picture I painted. And so I think my my goal for the poem was just to, to kind of illustrate or juxtapose rather, you know, some of the things that do appear in the media 
with some of the things that I've seen personally that are, are self-made and are, are joyous moments or joyous occasions. And I also wanted to just illustrate, you know, some of the, the tragedies that may not even be um, self-inflicted. And so I think that, you know, if anything, the message in, in that was that, um, you know, Oakland is complex and, and mm. it's um, and it's rich and it's, it's you know, it's historic. And I think that um, if anything else, I wanted to spark a dialogue or a conversation about those things so that folks don't just take uh, one person's word for it or one outlet's word for it, that they can kind of investigate it for themselves. Well, I think you do that very well. Like I said, I think it it gives you a sense of Oakland as something much bigger than even than any depiction of the city in the present moment, but also than the whole city. Sure made up of a bunch of pictures in that present moment. I yeah. really liked the sort of connections with history and the past. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do you consider your work political? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, I think uh, this, this is the age-old debate or, or discussion around, you know, political poetry. But I think, yeah, I think all poetry is political. I'll get shot, you know, if I say that in the wrong space, <laughs> but I think, uh, and I think that, you know, demonstrates that poetry is political. <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, I mean, I think, I think absolutely. I think, so Nina Simone, I mentioned her pretty often uh, in, in spaces because um, she, she did an interview and she says that the, the duty of an artist or the, the artist's duty is to reflect the times. And she says that's true of painters, of sculptors, of musicians, of, you know, any medium um, across the board. She says, how can you not, you know, how can you be an artist and not reflect the time? She says, that to me is my duty. Um, and then she goes on to say, like, in these tragic times, you know, I, I don't see, there's no, nothing else I can do right now but to, but to reflect the times. And so I started out writing and thinking about quotes like that and, and, and with Nina Simone in mind. And it's like, um, you know, at one point I was asked, why are all your poems so sad or why are all your poems mm-hmm. so heavy? Um, and, I, and I really did some thinking. I thought about it, and I, and I, and I said, you know, said to myself, I don't. That's that's what's going on. You know, that's that's what I'm seeing. My poems are heavy. My poems are sad because that's what I'm looking at right now. Mm. And so I can't write anything else. And if I write about something else, and that's inauthentic, that's not true, and that's not honest or transparent. And so um, I think, yeah, I mean, if 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 you if if you're going to be honest or transparent with yourself and in your writing. The, your poems are going to be political in, in some facet. Even if you write about flowers, you know, there's there's yeah. there's politics in that, <laughs> you know, somewhere. What is your process like when you're writing a poem like this? Especially one that I think there is a lot of structure involved in this, right? The end mirrors the beginning. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of repetition. Well, most of my poems spark from, you know, a, a word or an image or a thought. Um, and then I kind of build the poem around that thing. And, and most of the time it changes, you know. Um, so I'm not, I don't even remember what the thought or the image or the the thing is that I, that I started writing that poem from. But I, I think process-wise, like for me, I'm always carrying a backpack, uh, or I used to be, not so much anymore, but um, now I use my phone for just about everything. But I used <laughs> to carry around a backpack and it had in it a ton of journals or, you know, these these pieces of paper. And all it was is I had these ideas or these thoughts or these lines or these these, you know, these words, and I would need to write them down. And so I would usually do that. I'd write them down, and they'd end up in my backpack, and then at some point I'd sit down and actually compile all those images or thoughts or, or whatnot and make poems out of them. Mm. And so um, that used that used to kind of be my process, especially when it came to writing poem uh, poetry. 
But I'm thinking about, like, for that poem um, and others about Oakland, typically I, I kind of imagine myself moving through Oakland. So from, like, literally the start of Oakland from, you know, like like North Berkeley, and then I move mm-hmm. through Oakland, maybe even, like, going down San Pablo and then crossing over into International Boulevard, which we call East 14th still, in the, you know, into San Leandro. So I imagine myself kind of, you know, riding my bike through, like, Oakland. What do I see on my right? What do I see on my left? What is my feelings? What's the weather like? You know, thinking about the historical, you know, uh, implications of Oakland. And those are the, the kind of things and the images and lines and thoughts that I think came through in the poem. It's just kind of imagining myself there and, and what Oakland um, looks like, you know, physically. And then, again, unpacking those those physical things. You alluded to the fact that uh, the, the name of yeah. <laughs> East 14th Street has, has changed to yeah. uh, International, International Avenue. Boulevard. Inter- yeah. International Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. There've been a lot of changes in Oakland yeah. in your lifetime. Yep. How does that come into your poetry? Yeah. I, honestly, um, I actually only have one poem that actually I think even touches on uh, Oakland changing in, in recent times. Outside of that, I haven't really. I don't think I've really th- thought much about it creatively. I know that I, I struggled to survive when I was there later on because, you know, it just was so expensive um, and things were, were, were changing. And I think it was getting a little less. What often happens is these places that are really, really um, uh, eclectic and cultured and, and down to earth and, and vibrant, they attract they attract folks for the right reasons, right, because they are these really cool places. But in that, of course, that's when capitalism kind of thrives. And so what ends up happening is the the reasons for those for that culture and for that eclecticism um, ends up getting pushed out, and then you end up having, of course, the, you know, the rise of capitalism in these places. And so I don't I don't know again I don't know if I've thought about it creatively. I just I, I think about it that, that 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 my heart hurts that Oakland is changing and that folks that I I, I know from you know, before I was born, have been there, are not only, not no longer able to, to, to exist there. Um, it's no longer feasible for, for, for folks to live there. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's really saddening um, to, to, to think about that, the fact that it's changing. Like, like many places, especially like, like New York, we talked about New York earlier mm. um, before we started the interview. And yeah, New York is another place um, like Brooklyn and, and Harlem that are, that are changing. Um, and so, you know, it's a sad thing. I just, I don't know if I have you know, I don't know if I've 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 gained the 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 courage to to capture it creatively yet. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of feel like Oakland is fighting back in ways that some other cities haven't. Again, Oakland is rebellious <laughs> and 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 hard headed, so <laughs> it's, not, it's not. Yeah, it's it's not just gonna, you know, I guess roll over. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. KSQD thanks The Opening, a center for courses in writing, for supporting the story behind the story. The Opening offers classes, book completion groups, and writing retreats in Santa Cruz and online, led by award-winning local writer Andy Couturier, author of The Abundance of Less. More information at theopening.org or 831-728-9983. Thank you, The Opening, for supporting Community Radio, K-Squid, 90.7 FM.
If you're just joining me, my guest today is poet, performer, and CSU Monterey Bay professor Daniel Summerhill. I'd like you to read another one of your poems from your new collection, uh, the one that's called We Usually Fought Before We Knew Why. And again, if there's anything you want to share about this before you go into it, by all means. Yeah, um, I'm not going to share too much. I think everything that, 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 that you would need to know, I think, is, is in here. So I'll just go ahead and get into it. We usually fought before we knew why. Nick was a looter. And by looter, I mean he started every sentence off with, let me get a, his tongue, a stick up eager to take the last ounce of a kid's dignity. As if his slick black hair wasn't intrusive enough, the irony of his anti-war leather jacket left the black top both afraid and confused. By the time first period closed, he had already captured the wrinkled $5 bills of nearly every sixth grade boy on campus in the gleaming eyes of every girl. As suburban as Albany Middle School was, nothing sang power like the faces of Jamel, Delroy, Clifton, Nana, and I, as custom was to glue our black bodies to each other in order to stay fist. Our huddle, a fortress not to be tempted or broken. One afternoon, Clifton launched a kickball which turned the courtyard into a civil war. Nick's tongue infantry, our unmeditated response, was an inaugural war drum, a tempo racing as fast as our heartbeats. Nick swung, then we fought like we were Pennsylvania and the Confederates were attempting to take our lunch money. You were talking earlier about how in a lot of your poems you start with a central idea or metaphor or concept and the sort of war and military metaphor is is here from the beginning and sort of amps up yeah can you tell me about that and tell me how you think about the metaphor and how it evolves as you're writing yeah yeah sure um what what i use oftentimes too uh, what i enjoy doing is using like extended metaphor and all that means is that like you said there's a centralized kind of metaphor that's used in different ways throughout the poem instead of just in one sentence or one line or, or, or one stanza. And so um, I'm not even sure that uh, it started off as like a military um, kind of metaphor. I think that initially this poem came from me thinking about um, my time in middle school and then also, you know, the, the, what I spent most of my time doing. And it was hanging around these, these other, uh, other young men. And I remember that it was really important um, for us as black boys in this setting to really stay close and to stay um, mm. and to have each other's backs and to look after one another. And so, I mean, and that's where kind of the, the, the title comes from. It's, it's, you know, we didn't, we didn't ask questions, right? If it was an injustice against one of us, it was an injustice against all mm -hmm. of us. And so um, in a lot of ways, that's the same thing as, as like military camaraderie, right? Oftentimes soldiers don't have no idea why they're even fighting or, you know, what their mission is about. They just, they're told to do one thing and they, and they kind of execute it. And it's based off of the fact that they're fighting ultimately for some kind of freedom or some kind of, um, or maybe some political gain or, you know, there's, again, there's some, there's some agenda out there, but at that point it doesn't matter. And so I was kind of thinking about that when I, when I wrote this poem, um, that it doesn't matter what the agenda is as long as we kind of stuck together. Um, you know, we'd figure, out, figure it out collectively. Much like the sort of cadence and rhythm of your delivery changes when you perform different poems, uh, the poems in this collection, or the ones that you showed me anyway, mm -hmm. 
are laid out on the page in very different ways. Yeah. And so this one is is laid out as complete paragraphs, kind of like prose. Yeah. How do you settle on the structure of a poem or that that sort of formatting or layout? Is it something conscious, or do structure and formatting come out organically as you're writing? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. I think um, there's been poems. So poems know what they want to be. Uh, oftentimes poems write themselves because, again, you know, if you get out of your own head, poems typically know what they want to do and know what they want to be. When it comes to the form, I think oftentimes the content also uh, influences the form. So if you're going to write a poem that uh, includes a few different smaller stories or something like that, little vignettes, then, it, you know, and they do follow some kind of narrative arc or they do follow some kind of story, then, you know, a prose poetic kind of form does does emulate that, right? And so I think I think it has to do with the content and how the content informs the the form or the layout on the page. Talk to me about poetry as storytelling, because it's, it's come up a couple times. Yeah, yeah, poetry is storytelling. So, so, I mean, my oldest sister, I, I talked about her before, but anyways, she uh, had this, when I, when I was growing up, because um, she's 15 years older than I am again, so I remember um, she had, in her bedroom, maybe three out of the four walls were like books, and from like floor to ceiling, just books. Um, and so I just remember um, her reading and then also sharing with me the, the stories that she would, you know, would read in these books or, you know, just different things she thought about when, when reading those, those books. And so I think my, my, you know, my root is, is in storytelling. My root is in, you know, seeing something or experiencing a moment or, um, you know, thinking about a moment and, and sharing that out. And so I wouldn't say all of my work is, is narrative based, but a lot of it is. Um, there's some lyrical quality to some of it, but I think a lot of it is is rooted in the narrative and in, in, in following some kind of story. How do the poems in Divine, Divine, Divine fit together in your mind? What makes them work not just as individual pieces, but as a collection? So when I was putting this manuscript together, um, I worked with uh, a mentor of mine. Her name is Laurent Bossalard, phenomenal, world-renowned poet. And so anyways, we were working together on, on putting the manuscript together and figuring out how they, you know, they would, what order they would go in and uh, how we should cluster them and whatnot. And so in a lot of collections, poetry collections, things are clustered based off of like subject matter or they're clustered together, uh, maybe similar themes or, or things like that. So when I was thinking about Divine, 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 what I wanted to do is instead of clustering them together based off of those, um, you know, those subjects or themes is to make each kind of set of poems converse with one another. And so that this middle school me was conversing with um, maybe an adult me about the complexities of Oscar Grant being killed and what that looks like. Of course, they also take different forms, like you said, too. So I think it's also a balance between um, the, the narrative, right, or the more choppy and rhythmic poems, right? I think all of those things ultimately paint this larger picture. So each poem stands on its own. But I think if you were to look at the collection as a whole, they also make up this, this larger um, kind of brick collage of, of, of poems and images and thoughts. You edited another collection which came out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Black Joy, and that, tell me about that project. Yeah, so so that project came out of, uh, so Chapter 510, which is a literary nonprofit in Oakland, um, they do do beautiful work, so um, it's worth checking them out. They reached out to me and, and, you know, asked me to design a workshop and asked me what I would look, you know, what that workshop would look like, who I'd like to work with. And so uh, I I did some some thinking in uh, in Oakland and in other parts, too. There's a huge gap between the literacy of 
uh, black boys and like everybody else. Mm-hmm. They're typically, um, they usually have like the lowest reading level and things like that. So I said, okay, who can I work with and I would have the most impact on um, through this workshop? And so, and I also thought about the fact that I didn't just want to have a, a poetry workshop or a writing workshop. I also wanted to include conversation and discourse, too, around something, right? And I mm. arrived at Black Joy and what it means to be Black and to be happy about that because um, that in itself is kind of a rebellious act. So what I wanted to do is have these teenagers, um, so they were 13 to 18. We came and we met for a few months um, on Saturdays, which was amazing because getting a teenager to, to hook up with you at 2 o'clock on a Saturday <laughs> is, you know, is a feed in itself. So anyways, we met, and the first half of the workshop was literally just having dialogue, conversations, um, writing exercises, these little mini field trips, and d- just discussing what joy looks like to them. What You know, what are you guys into? Um, how do you guys express yourselves? And then what does that mean for, for black joy? What does that mean in the larger landscape of, of being black and existing? Um, and then ultimately, that led to the poems that, that were in the collection, um, which, you know, again, were, were, were poems that, um, that sparked from writing prompts about black joy. So I came up with these prompts. They would write these poems in response to these prompts. Then we, of course, edited those poems, went through re- uh, revisions, and we workshopped and, and looked at each other's poems and made each other's poems better. Um, and then, you know, that was ultimately what was, was published. What were the biggest surprises for you in that process of, of leading that workshop and turning it into a collection and that whole thing all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the biggest interesting and funny uh, aspects that came was that they didn't really understand the publishing world or like what it meant Mm. to write something and then have it published. And so that that realization came at, at the launch party. So the, the book was published. They did this phenomenal reading. You know, the, the, the participants in the workshop did this reading, shared their poems. And then afterwards, folks were lined up around the venue to kind of get their book signed. And so I, I think it was really in that moment that they realized mm-hmm. that like having poems published in like this bound book that is out in the world is a thing and it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of folks out there that want to be published or, you know, want to have their things kind of published. And so it was the fact that um, those students, even, you know, in all of my my attempts to, to kind of expand their view, still realizing that they still have a very narrow and confined view of the world to not even understand what it means mm. to be published. And that in itself was a, you know, it was an interesting and funny thing, but also it's a really disheartening thing to think about, too. Are you still in touch with those students? Yeah, yeah, many of them, yeah, absolutely. And some of them, uh, like their parents reach out. Because most of them, they didn't show up because they wanted to. Um, <laughs> they showed up. So at the very beginning of the workshop, they were asked, why are you guys here? And most of them are like, yeah, my mom dropped me off. My mom signed me up. They were asked that, you know, a similar question at the end. And, of course, they were actually invested in the writing and the workshop and the, and the dialogue. So, they, you know, they got bamboozled into being there in the, in the beginning. But ended, they ended up kind of, you know, really enjoying and, and becoming a family at the end of the workshop. Do they still write? That's a good question. Um, I know there's there's uh, two or three of them that I know do. Um, the other ones I'm not in contact as with with as much, so I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I would I would hope and pray that they do. You know, still write. I, I would love for that to to happen because I think you know it's beneficial not just to you know be a writer or a published writer, but just you know just in general, especially as as you know them and who they are and their identities. I think it's important. Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How did working with those students and and taking students who 
really had no idea about the publication process and, and leading them to publish something. Yeah. How did that impact you? Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's really sobering. Um, it's really sobering to think about the fact that I was, you know, one of them at, at one point um, that, uh, you know, I guess didn't fully understand the world or didn't fully understand literature or poetry. And I guess it really made me just think about my own process, my own practice. And I, I think, I, you know, I wrote and, and grew and shared, too, with them, too. So I guess, you know, I did, I did facilitate the workshop. But in a lot of ways, I was a, I was a participant just, you know, just as they were. Um, so, I, you know, if anything, I think it was just, it was just cool to get to, to hang out with a group of, of young men that, were, that are, you know, pure and, and imaginative um, and in a lot of ways innocent, too, and just to kind of get that, you know, and think about that in, in, in my own work. And um, again, it kind of sobered me to, to, to think about, you know, their, our relationship with them, but then also all of our relationship with the world and, and, and how, we, how we operate in it. The theme, as you said, was Black Joy. Mm -hmm. Did you have preconceived notions about what that meant to you going in, and did those change as you heard what other people had to say about it? Yeah, yeah, sure. I, so yeah, I mean, I had yeah, I had, I had ideas, I, and I still have you know ideas about Black Joy, and ultimately, Black Joy is just being existing as a Black person and being happy about it, and that in any form, right? So then, in the workshop, um, there was an actor in my workshop. There was a um, a football player in my workshop. Mm -hmm. There was um, a musician in my workshop. There was a gamer in my workshop. So all of them, um, and it was it was great because they all expressed their joy differently. And so, um, again, through our dialogue, through our discourse, it's like, what does black joy mean to you who thrives in gaming? What does it mean to you who is really into skateboarding? What does it mean to you, right, that's in, you know, already in, the art, in art and, and whatnot? So I think um, just being exposed to all of their different interests, it, I wouldn't say it changed my thought about black joy because my thought already was kind of really um, all-encompassing. Um, but I think it just added other components or pieces to, to, to my thoughts about Black Joy. What are you working on now? Yeah, next step, um, I've been really uh, interested in, in writing these these essays, um, or a collection of essays, rather. So, so two major things. I'm actually working on poems, but I'm also working on um, this collection of essays. So the, the collection of poems um, is actually a kind of a, a response or um, it's a love letter in a lot of ways to, to Frank Ocean's um, album Blonde, mm -hmm. um, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, but anyways, it, what it does is it kind of dissects uh, like each track and it, it's, yeah, it's kind of a meditation on each track and my responses um, to, 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 those, to those things that he was discussing in, in, in his songs. The essay collection has to do with a lot of really, um, I guess, mundane, uh, like black um, culture or discourse things, one of which is uh, like gospel music and what it means. Like, what what does gospel music mean? Like, what is black gospel music? What does it look like? What's the definition of it? What's included and what's not? Um, and in large part, it has to do with um, like Kanye West recently released a gospel album, quote unquote. Right? Um, what constitutes that as being a gospel album um, and what doesn't? Because um, there's other folks too, other you know, other rappers that that dabble into gospel music, but then there's also the traditionalists that would frown upon their music and say that it was it's secularist or it's, it shouldn't be included for one reason or another. So, anyways, um, I'm working on these essays <laughs> um, that explore those kind of things and those 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 kind of um, conversations. Well. 
Daniel Summerhill, it has been lovely. Thank you for being here today. Thanks. Thanks a bunch for having me. It's been great. I really appreciated it. To learn more about Daniel's work, see videos of his performances, or get updates about his forthcoming poetry collection, Divine, 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 visit his website, danielsummerhill.com. You can purchase Black Joy, an anthology of black boy poems, on the Nomadic Press website or from other online retailers. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Saturday of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 